Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the end of times, occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on June 12, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Uh, continuing our special COVID programming, I'm pleased to welcome back Carmel Shakar, the Executive Director of the Petri Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology and Bioethics at Harvard Law School, as we continue uh, to listen to some of the great uh, discussions uh, that uh, she and her colleagues recorded. So Carmel, welcome back and give us the background for this next uh, series of talks. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. As you mentioned, this is the second in a series of three episodes drawn from Innovation and Protection, the Future of Medical Device Regulation, which was originally the 2020 Petrie Flom Center annual conference. Of course, we were unable to hold the conference due to the pandemic. These episodes highlight a selection of papers that were written for the conference, which was organized in collaboration with the University of Copenhagen Center for Advanced Studies in Biomedical Innovation Law, or SIBO, and the University of Arizona's Health Law Program. All of these papers will be published in an upcoming edited volume. This episode, I think, is really fun because it focuses on the intersection of software algorithms and data with medical devices. First, we have Nicholson Price, who is talking with Barbara Evans, the Mary Ann and Lawrence E. Faust Professor of Law at the University of Houston Law Center and Director of the Center on Biotechnology and Law to discuss her paper, Products, Product Liability Risks and Defense for FDA-Regulated Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning Software. Nicholson then talks with Craig Knopf, Associate Professor of Law, Colorado Law, and University of Colorado Boulder about his work, Are Electronic Health Records Medical Devices? Lastly, we have myself, talking with Anthony Weiss, Chief Medical Officer of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Harvard Medical School, about his work, Professional Self-Regulation in Medicine, Will the Rise of Intelligent Tools Mean the End of Peer Review? Hi, and welcome. I'm Nicholson Price, a professor at the University of Michigan Law School, and with me today is Professor Barbara Evans. Uh, Barbara, would you mind introducing yourselves for our listeners? Yes, I'm Barbara Evans. I teach law and engineering, and I'm in the process of moving to the University of Florida, where I will have an appointment in the law school and in the engineering school. And what made you interested in participating in this conference on regulation of medical devices on the first in the first place? FDA regulation, and in particular device regulation, has long been an interest of mine. And in recent years, I find myself increasingly doing work with the FDA-regulated software. So that became a focus of our, our paper for this conference. Uh, great. So uh, just to get us on the right page, would you mind summing up your paper for us in about a tweet length? Thank you. Yes. Uh, this paper is one that I've co-authored with Frank Pasquale of the Brooklyn Law School, and it looks at the impact of FDA's growing presence in regulating software as a medical device. And one of the sort of under-discussed impacts of having FDA regulate medical software is that FDA-regulated software is framed as a product, as a medical device, and that carries the potential implication of opening software products to product liability suit. This paper explores some of the implications of that and, and how it might play out. Well, thanks. So let's uh, let's dive right in there. Uh, in the article, you talk about how the, the 21st Century Cures Act 
has confirmed FDA's authority to regulate clinical decision support software and has also altered the contours of that regulation. Can you summarize how the 21st Century Cures Act treats the regulation of clinical decision support software uh, on FDA's side? Clinical decision support software in this context refers to software that combines information about a particular patient, such as test results from the patient with some general source of medical knowledge, such as peer-reviewed literature or clinical practice guidelines, or even an AI of data mining of type of software to offer recommendations to healthcare providers, either about how to diagnose the patient, how best to treat them. And the problem 21st Century Cures was trying to navigate is that that software comes awfully close to looking like the practice of medicine, which is something FDA has not traditionally regulated and has been primarily regulated by state medical practice regulators in the medical profession. So Congress was trying to avoid encroaching across that line. So the way they did it was they divided the clinical decision support software into two classes. Some of it offers recommendations that are intended to be transparent to the physician or other healthcare provider that uses it, uh, sort of explainable uh, software. In that case, the 21st Century Cures says FDA has no jurisdiction to regulate it. The uh, users, the physicians can decide whether they want to accept the recommendation, and then it's a practice issue how they use the software. Where the Cures Act does grant jurisdiction to FDA is in situations where the clinical decision support software is what uh, you have referred to as a black box, where it's inscrutable to the physician user how it is coming up with its recommendations. And in that situation, a physician can't critique the regulation and, and may be inclined just to rely on the software to make a diagnosis or treatment. In that situation, the Cures Act does authorize FDA to regulate the software because the usual mechanisms of medical practice regulation can't be effective if the software is inscrutable to physicians. Against the backdrop of this new regulatory framework for FDA and software, uh, how does products liability law come into play and and why does it matter uh, for this type of product? Product liability is one of the types of tort liability that can act as an adjunct to FDA's regulation. FDA is doing prospective regulation to try to prevent injuries by ensuring products are safe and effective. And yet sometimes things slip through and and patients are injured. and, And the main focus of the tort liability primarily is to compensate people who suffer an injury. Um, And um, so there's always been a relationship between FDA and tort law, except in certain instances in the device space when tort suits are preempted. And so uh, is preemption going to be a big concern in this space or uh, are people going to be able to bring suit? Well, as you know, with uh, product liability, there are three types, failure to warn, um, manufacturing defect and design defect. And FDA, uh, through cases like Medtronic versus Lore and Regal versus Medtronic, it's, it's uh, if a product has gone through a PMA approval, 
uh, in FDA's device regulations, uh, tort suits for failure to warn are preempted. If it has been through a 510K process, which does not involve FDA making a product-specific determination of safety and effectiveness, uh, those suits are not preempted. Based on FDA's statements of policy for regulating software, which is very much still a work in progress, it does not appear that FDA will be making those product-specific safety and effectiveness determinations that would be preemptive. Uh, so I think the failure to warn suits can uh, probably won't be preempted. And then on design defect and manufacturing defect, I, I think the same thing is true. There, there will not be preemption. Okay. So so we're looks like we're going to be able to have tort suits. And, and you uh, you argue in the chapter about what these, these tort suits are going to look like, whether they're going to be a, a negligence-based standard uh, or a uh, strict liability standard. Uh, for those of our listeners who might have had a little bit of time since they've uh, had tort law or haven't ever had tort law, can you uh, remind us of the distinction between these two and say uh, which type you think uh, is likely to, to show up in these circumstances? Well, the main difference, and, and product liability suits can either be argued in negligence or on a strict liability theory, and sometimes the two look rather alike, but the uh, main thing, a negligence suit requires the plaintiff to have much more information about what went on at the software developer's operations that fell below a standard of care, which can put a significant evidentiary burden on plaintiffs, because often you don't know what went on inside a, a factory or at a developer. The strict product liability suits have a simpler evidentiary hurdle in theory. With a manufacturing defect, the plaintiff merely would have to show that the product is not to its specifications, that it isn't as it was intended to be, that somehow something went wrong and it departs from its intended design. With the design defect suits uh, for a complex product, which software is, the, the argument is that even though the product was the way it was intended to be, it was still unreasonably dangerous due to a design defect. And the design defect suits often come close to looking like negligence type arguments because of that, uh, that involvement of a reasonability concept. Thanks. And, and this, uh, this fits into one of the neat arguments uh, that your, your chapter makes. So you, you talk about the fact that under FDA's proposed clarification, and this is bringing us back to earlier in our conversation, um, there is not really a great process for FDA to determine whether a software is intended to be explainable uh, such that FDA can't regulate it or it's going to be black box such that FDA can regulate it and it kind of leaves it up to software developers. Um, how does product liability uh, play into and influence uh, this, this decision in this jurisdictional line? Yes, the jurisdictional line is just as you said. If the manufacturer says, I intended this software to be explainable so that physicians can, can independently review its recommendations, uh, then it is not subject to FDA regulation. And um, unfortunately, through two guidances that FDA has, their draft guidances in 2017 and 2019, FDA has not yet enunciated how the agency is going to assess whether that criterion has been met or not met, which uh, means that FDA has a blurry jurisdictional line. And it can be assumed that a software developer would probably say, I intend for the software to be understandable by the physician and not to be the sole basis for medical decision-making. That would take the, um, the manufacturer 
factor out of FDA jurisdiction seemingly, and also perhaps remove it from product liability because if FDA isn't regulating it, the, the manufacturer could claim, well, this is a software service I'm providing and it's, it shouldn't be put under product liability. Uh, the difficulty with that is that um, that's very hard standard for courts to wield and for plaintiffs to show. And uh, the idea of a manufacturing defect suit is just to say this thing, the manufacturer says it was intended to be explainable, and then it's relatively easy to call the physician to the stand and say, do you understand it? And if they say no, seemingly that software is out of conformity with its design specifications, and you might have a manufacturing defect suit. That's a, that's a fascinating combination, uh, and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, unfortunately, we are just about out of time. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for taking the time to uh, have this conversation today. Uh, and for our listeners, uh, if you are looking to learn more, uh, the chapter will be uh, out in the book. Uh, thank you again, Professor Evans, for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. My guest is Craig Connor. Uh, Craig, could you introduce yourselves briefly uh, for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Craig Connor. I'm a, an associate professor at the University of Colorado, where I also direct uh, the health data um, and technology program at the Silicon Fat Iron Center for uh, um, Law and Technology. Terrific. And uh, what uh, what made you interested in participating in this conference on regulating medical devices in the first place? Um, frankly, because uh, I, I thought that was an interesting question about whether uh, electronic health records, which is an area that I'm interested in, um, has anything or much to do with the issue of medical devices. Um, and uh, so I thought I'd uh, jump jump on board to see if I could figure out the answer to that question. <laughs> I love it. So let's uh, let's start out then, just dive right into the paper. Um, for starters, can you sum up your paper for us in a tweet? <laughs> um, a long tweet. Um, so, uh, so, so basically, I argue that uh, the aspects of electronic health records that are not uh, treated as medical devices um, uh, um, are are basic uh, connect to. Um, I'm Nicholson. I'm sorry. I don't think I can do it in a tweet. Can I? Can I? Can I take? Can I take a little longer to do it? Sure. Sure. Go for it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, uh, so basically, um, the, the the question is whether electronic health records are medical devices. Um, and um, in recent legislation, Congress has said, well, um, most aspects of um, EHRs are not medical devices. Um, some aspects can be treated as medical devices. Um, and I say that that is the correct outcome. Um, I feel that Congress hasn't given any justification, nor has the agency given a good justification. Um, my reasoning is basically that EHRs uh, connect to so many other um, uh, systems and technologies um, that they go beyond the way in which um, FDA regulation is traditionally carried out, um, and um, and and therefore you can't really consider EHRs medical devices, or most of their functions cannot be considered medical devices. Okay, great. So let's uh, let's dive in a little bit more deeply. Now, what's the implication of this classification? You say uh, EHRs shouldn't be generally classified as a, as a medical device. Why does that matter? What what happens? Uh, what's the result of this classification? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so a medical device is um, as you know better than I do. 
uh, regulated by the FDA and may often come with a whole bunch of requirements as to when the device can be placed on the market, um, how uh, various entities can use the device, etc. And the concern is that if you treat all electronic health records and all aspects of electronic health records as medical devices, it'll be a bit of overkill um, and that'll stifle innovation. It'll uh, stifle the uh, fast and accurate exchange of data, um, which has been, been a priority in the last few years. Um, and uh, it would ultimately um, overall harm the, the health data um, infrastructure uh, that we have. Um, so so, so those, those are some of the key problems. The other aspect is that I think that it just would go beyond FDA expertise to regulate all aspects of health data um, um, of, of, of electronic health records. All right. So uh, that's useful. Let's, I, I want to do two things. First, I want to talk about kind of how we got here. And then I want to move on to, well, what should we do now? So, so in terms of how we got here, um, what has the FDA said about this? What's its position been? Uh, has it been consistent and saying, yes, these are medical devices or inconsistent? Uh, what, what's, what's come before us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, back in 1987, uh, the FDA talked about what then would be considered electronic health records and said, you know, look, we aren't here to regulate uh, these um, the, the software. Um, as time has gone on, the FDA has seemed to have flip-flopped, um, suggesting that it doesn't have the power to regulate electronic health records or health information technology. Uh, there's obviously an overlap between the two. And sometimes gone. And you, you, we've had elements of the FDA go in the other direction. Um, and the most recent pronouncement has been to suggest that um, that, that uh, electronic health records should not be regulated as a general matter for two reasons. Uh, one is because uh, medical professionals exercise independent judgment. They go and they look at electronic health record and they decide, well, we like what the EHR is telling us or we don't like what the EHR is telling us and we'll decide on our own uh, whether to use whatever information we get to treat the patient. Um, and the other reason the FDA has given is that it said that um, unlike um, uh, uh, unlike various other systems, EHRs don't um, get uh, don't get don't get updated on a regular basis, and um, and so it would not uh, fall within, um, or rather, do get updated on a regular basis, so it would not fall within their, their traditional expertise. Um, and I explain why uh, neither of these justifications actually make sense. Uh, the point is that all kinds of medical devices produce outputs that medical professionals look at and then exercise judgment as to um, how to take into account that output when treating the patient. Um, and again, um, all kinds of medical devices are updated in very different ways um, and making generalizations in the way the FDA has um, doesn't doesn't really make sense. Um, so so what I do in the paper is I rely on um, on a report um, that, that came out a few years ago that basically divides electronic health record functions into three groups. Uh, the first group uh, involves so your billing functions, your administrative functions, those functions are not really patient facing uh, in the sense that, you know, whatever the, your doctor bills the insurance company doesn't uh, directly, let's put it that way, affect the patient. Uh, the second has to do with health management functions. Um, and your health man management functions uh, basically include things like collecting your medical data, um, documentation of the data, electronic access to clinical results, uh, clinical decision support, um, and those kinds of matters. And 
then the final kind of function that they talk about are medical device functions um, that relate to computer-aided uh, detection software, um, remote display of data, um, you know, um, alarms, r- real-time alarms, etc. Um, and and basically, what I say is that you know, when it comes to the first kinds of functions, we're really thinking about how data is collected at different points of the health data ecosystem and transferred um, across the ecosystem um, to the point of the clinical encounter. Um, and because we're talking about data transfer over, um, you know, v- sometimes vast networks, um, that renders electronic health records with respect to that function somewhat different than medical devices that may treat uh, the patient at a specific point of contact and doesn't necessarily involve uh, the transfer of data over um, large networks. Okay, so uh, so what do we do? What what should so we've gotten to this this place where uh, electronic health records have a ton of stuff involved in them? Um, the all these different functions, like what's the right response? Obviously, these are critical to patient care. Uh, who should be overseeing that? Absolutely. So I think that the question um, really should turn on uh, the extent to which a particular electronic health record function um, is implicates the use of technology that goes far beyond the particular um, point of contact with a patient or when it doesn't. So let me give you an example. Um, and I'll take a specific function um, that we see in most EHRs today, which is clinical decision support. Now, clinical decision support um, can, uh, you know, on one hand involves, you know, an algorithm that says, okay, you know, fine, if we see this, you know, this kind of image or this kind of um, data, um, then it means that the patient has this kind of condition, is at risk for uh, this particular event, um, you know, um, should not take this kind of medication and the like. And I think that when we're talking about the specific algorithm um, that may be used at the point of encounter, um, the FD, that, that, that should fall within the FDA's traditional jurisdiction because, because it re- involves that specific encounter. But on the other hand, let us say um, we're talking about a clinical decision system that um, analyzes in real-time data that is obtained from numerous other um, medical facilities um, and uh, analyzes that data in real-time and then spits out the answer um, or spits out an answer. Um, The aspect of CDS functionality that requires it to collect the data from other entities, um, that should not be within FDA regulation. And the reason for that is the is, is that the ability uh, is, is that that functionality depends not just on the software or the point of contact with the patient, but it also depends upon software and technology that goes across the network that goes far beyond that particular encounter. Um, and so we need an entity that can provide oversight of the broader network of interconnected devices that will supply the data. Um, and um, and I argue that that entity is not the FDA. So Craig, in 2016, Congress passed the 20. 20- First Century Cures Act that said most electronic health records aren't medical devices. Did they get it right? Um, I think they got it right, um, but I think they uh, got it right for uh, maybe the wrong reasons. Um, so if you look at the rationale based on which Congress passed it, I don't think most of those rationales really hold up. Um, and so the question that I came at this paper with was, was Congress right in doing so? And if so, were there were there good reasons right, uh, for doing this? And, I, and the purpose of this paper is really to excavate those reasons. Just to wrap up, of course, the reason we're doing this remotely is we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So let me ask, does that pandemic, does COVID-19 change anything about the way we should think about regulating electronic health records? 
Um, I think that what we're seeing is um, a speeding up of various kinds of um, functionality with respect to electronic health records. Um, you know, here at Denver Health, um, you know, in, in, in Denver where I live, um, we um, have seen um, all kinds of clinical decision support um, and other kinds of functionality, um, you know, rolled out by uh, providers. We've seen the introduction of new data categories uh, that allow for data testing, um, all kinds of new forms of interconnectedness. So, um, so what I've, what I, th- I feel we've seen is a whole bunch of acceleration with respect to interconnectedness, with respect to electronic health records. And I hope that translates more broadly to the health system. Terrific. Well, that is all the time we have for today. So thank you so much for joining us, Craig. And uh, I look forward to reading the final version of the chapter. Thanks to you all for listening. Thank you, Nicholson. Hello, everyone. I'm here today with Anthony Weiss, who is from the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, as well as Harvard Medical School, to discuss the paper that you wrote, Will the Rise of Intelligent Tools Mean the End of Peer Review? Before we start, I also want to mention that he co-wrote this with Barack Richmond of the Duke University School of Law and Stanford University Department of Medicine. Tony, welcome, and it's nice to have this discussion with you. Thanks so much for having me, Carmel. It's great to be here. Before we start talking about the paper, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Oh, sure. Uh, So my name is Anthony Weiss. I'm an associate professor of psychiatry and a member of the Center for Bioethics at Harvard Medical School, and I serve as the chief medical officer at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. My career is really focused on healthcare quality um, and how we create learning organizations within healthcare. And I've also been very interested in the ethical implications of change within healthcare, particularly uh, technological change on patients, on doctors, and on the patient-doctor relationship. So this paper was originally part of the Petrie Flom Center's annual conference, which would have focused on medical devices. Can you tell us why you were interested in participating in the conference on the regulation of medical devices? Oh, sure. So, um, I mean, this paper really came out of a series of conversations between me and and, uh, Brock Richmond at Duke. Um, Brock had written a a really interesting piece in New England Journal of Medicine on the regulatory aspects of artificial intelligence. Um, And I had asked him about uh, the implications of this new technology on the concept of peer review and the concept of physician self-regulation in healthcare. And um, so that led to a number of conversations and led to a paper. And ultimately, uh, we were hoping to be able to present that. Um, But of course, uh, other events have intervened. So, um, but it's uh, it's been a a great working relationship and we're looking forward to doing even more together. Speaking of the paper, could you sum up the paper for us in a tweet? In a tweet? Um, uh, Let me think. Uh, So, uh, will AI supplement the capacity of physician self-regulation or will it supplant it? That's that's probably what I would say. I think it's a, a question of uh, whether AI is going to be a, a tool that helps in the oversight of healthcare or whether it is ultimately going to mean the end of uh, the current approach to healthcare oversight via physician self-regulation. I would definitely retweet that. <laughs> when you talk about physician self-regulation, I think your paper focus, focuses a lot on peer review as a tool for that regulation. Could you explain to us what exactly peer review within the medical profession entails? Sure. So, so peer review um, is a concept. I, I guess there's really two two different meanings. I guess there's the um, the broad sense of peer review as an inter- integral part of 
of considering medicine as an actual profession. Uh, so the concept that um, as a profession, uh, physicians will police their own, so to speak, um, and that is part and parcel of it being um, distinct from other areas. So it, it is considered a profession and as a part of the uh, right of, of, of being a, a member of the, of the profession, there's an obligation to, to oversee healthcare and oversee the actions of, of fellow colleagues within the profession. And then the, the peer review concept itself is, is also a process. And so the process of peer review is the process by which physicians actually enact that self-regulation by um, reviewing each other's mistakes, more or less, and uh, applying uh, a standard of practice that tends to be somewhat local, um, but there are certain aspects that are that are broader or, or national um, to to those mistakes uh, to determine whether any individual physician is practicing out of the bounds of what um, the profession might consider appropriate or, or uh, normal. Um, so, in that sense, we're, we're really focusing here on both aspects of of the meaning of peer review, um, both the broader sense of peer review as um, an integral part of, of being a, a, a self-regulating profession, um, but also the actual practice of it uh, in uh, by medical staffs across the country. Before we get to the technology, when I hear regulation, I tend to think of state officials, state agencies. What is the relationship between peer review and more traditional authority like a regulatory agency? Well, that's a good question. I think in some ways it stands parallel to other regulation within health Healthcare. So healthcare is regulated via um, state licensing boards, uh, via um, some of the aspects of healthcare. Of course, the technology aspects, the uh, pharmaceutical aspects have federal re- regulations over- overseeing that. Um, but um, in some ways, it stands parallel uh, to that. I also like a, a concept that uh, Theodore Ruger at Penn had developed, which is the concept of healthcare regulation as a series of sequential devolutions in some ways from federal authority devolved down to state authority, state authority devolved to state licensing boards, and those state licensing boards uh, essentially devolving their authority down to local peer review, um, and in so and so uh, and so on. So that uh, in in some ways the authority to regulate healthcare has been ceded to um, a highly decentralized model of uh, individual medical staffs policing their own. So let's pivot to the medical device, the technology part of. How does artificial intelligence, AI, and digital technology come into the picture here? Well, it's AI poses um, a couple of fundamental challenges. Um, so first, let me talk about AI uh, in healthcare. It's a really exciting time uh, within healthcare um, uh, relative to this technology in the context of uh, AI uh, taking unique aspects of uh, a patient's history or presentation and other information that might be available within the medical record and piecing that together in, in uh, novel ways uh, via algorithms to identify optimal care. And so in some ways, um, this is fantastic and exciting because uh, it, it represents new learning and, and new knowledge um, and um, provides physicians with a tool uh, to assist in, in optimal care for patients in a, in a complex environment where existing research may not fully cover the landscape. So much of healthcare falls within gray areas between uh, evidence-based papers. And so even in the best evidence-based practices, um, people are complicated. 
and uh, they present with complicated pictures and uh, AI may help to be a tool uh, to assist in, in that complexity. But it does pose uh, at least two fundamental challenges uh, to the, this decentralized peer review model that we were talking about. I think first, to the degree that artificial intelligence um, becomes a provider in and of itself. So you're seeing some models in which uh, the AI, perhaps using chatbots, might actually be uh, querying patients directly, might actually be advising patients directly. And I think that's ultimately uh, the future of, of a lot of the patient-facing AI. Um, in some ways, then, it's actually representing um, medical practice. Uh, and to the degree that AI is actually making decisions that impact healthcare delivery, it's, it's really unclear how best to oversee it uh, using this peer review model. Uh, the peer review model relies on human-to-human -human interrogation and, and inquiry and, um, and then assessment of the actions that any individual physician took relative to uh, best practice. Um, and AI really isn't queryable, and it, it's really not using best practice models or al uh, algorithms that are taught in medical school. It's, it's using novel approaches. And then the second po component is that AI um, may actually in some ways be better than peer review in promoting what is the end result or the aim of peer review, which is patient safety. And so in some ways, um, AI could replace the very slow, retrospective, limited, biased approach known as peer review uh, with a much more proactive and real-time approach to ensuring patient safety. It sounds like there's a lot of opportunities, but also some challenges for incorporating AI into the peer review process. This makes me think of the COVID-19 pandemic that we're living through. There's a lot of push to find a treatment that will address these healthcare needs very rapidly. And I think the medical profession is perhaps struggling with how to best rapidly flag promising treatment while also ensuring patient safety. Do you think a hybrid model of AI and peer review could help with that process? Yeah, there are a number of approaches that may end up being best. A, not, a hybrid approach would be a, a good uh, next step. Uh, and I think this crisis really highlights some of the uh, current limitations um, of uh, the, the model of uh, applying evidence-based practice to um, care. So much of this current crisis involves, well, novel coronavirus uh, diseases and disease states and presentations that we've never seen before. And so taking real-time information and using that to help guide care may end up being a better approach than relying on, or at least solely relying on evidence-based practice. That said, um, a lot of the best care that's been provided right now has been through developing structured approaches, uh, consistent protocols, um, and using evidence-based practice based on uh, decades of experience of critically ill patients. And so a hybrid approach uh, may allow us to uh, assess the quality of care, both from the standpoint of um, adherence to established practice, but also using uh, as much information as can be applied to any individual patient. Well, Tony, this has been a really interesting discussion of the potential that AI has to revolutionize or refresh the peer review process. I really want to thank you for taking the time to discuss your work with us. Thank you so much, Carmel. And again, I want to thank my co-author, Barack Richmond. Um, we're really excited about uh, the implications of this technology and how it might impact regulation in healthcare. And that was The Week in Health Law. You can find Carmel at, at Carmel Shakar on Twitter. Nicholson Price is at W Nicholson Price. And Craig Connoth is 
is at C-K-O-N-N-O-T-H. Uh, again, Carmel, my thanks for bringing these great discussions to the Twill audience. Um, it was good having you back on the show. It was great to be here, and thank you for hosting us on Twill. We're big fans. Show notes are at Twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry. That's Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining us, and have a legally interesting but healthy, safe, and sane week. <laughs>